Hey everyone, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes released on time for the scheduled reading of the week. Unfortunately, this hasn't always been possible. We made the decision to release this episode with minimal editing rather than release it late. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of friends, family, and church. We're looking for additional volunteers to help with editing the podcast in time to get them released. The time commitment may vary from four to six hours per week. If you would like to help, send us a message on our Facebook page at Latter-day Peace Studies or email us at latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. We are also openly asking for donations to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. You can donate through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, and clicking on Get Involved, then scrolling down to the donate box. Thank you to all who have helped out over the years and donated to the project. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. And Ben, today we're going to talk about the entire book of Joshua. The Come Follow Me reading assignment is some chapters from Joshua. As established here, we don't do some chapters, we do all the chapters. <laughs> and and so far we're keeping that commitment. It's it's getting harder and harder. <laughs> it's pressing us to the limit, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And we want to have this, we want to do this in an hour. We said we want to do this in an hour. Let's do this in an hour. Okay. So let's start by going over a question that your wife brought up, Ben. You, you wrote to me a question from your wife. What was that question? Yeah, so she was reading through some of the book of Numbers, and it came to the point where they said that they lusted for meat, right? And said, hey, you know, we remember how in Egypt we had all these different kinds of food and meat, and we want that now. We're sick of manna. And so then what does God say? He says, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you meat. I'll give you so much meat. It's going to come out of your nose, you know, and ears and everything. Well, the idea here is that they were just eating manna, right? That's all they had in the wilderness. And yet throughout all these books, particularly Leviticus, it goes over and over and over how they're supposed to slaughter uh, sheep and cattle and birds and just like a lot of them all the time and eat them. And you're thinking, okay, how are you doing this if all you're really eating is manna? Or why are you needing meat so badly or and complaining about it if you've got all this cattle to do all these sacrifices all the time? And, you know, she she asked this question and I was like, you know, that crossed my mind, but I, I just kind of like moved on. I didn't even like, I didn't even let myself answer the question and she brought it up and I'm like, okay, that is a question I need to really look into. And I thought about it for a little bit, realized I couldn't really come up with 
an answer. And so I went to the source of all truth, Google, and <laughs> and put it in. And it turns out this is quite a question, right? This is quite the question among people in 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 asking, you know, what is it? What is this? A lot of people ask this question. How is it? How are they asking and complaining about meat if they ostensibly have all of this cattle and livestock, right? Yeah, wasn't it in, in my favorite Google result? It was BibleContradictions.com and it was number 120 something, <laughs> 120. <laughs> which which we've been noticing as we've gone along, right? We haven't counted them, but somebody has. Yeah. So this this is what we would call a gaping hole in the narrative here. It's like it it, it right. really there's there's something going on here that it's not explaining. Yeah, here's another question. If they do have, all, and we know that we have the, from the, the text at least tells us that they have all these animals, that they left Egypt with them. And so the question that I had earlier, which goes along with your wife's question is, how are these animals eating and drinking in the wilderness? Right. So I don't know. Are they eating manna too? I don't know. Where are they getting their water from the rock? I don't know. I don't know. It's a desert, right? So my, my son says, you know, well, at least they can eat grass, right? We can't, so we can eat them. But, but that's not what the story says, right? And and what grass? It's the, it's the desert, right? Yeah, there's not a lot. I mean, we say we say desert. You know, it's not like you know Sahara or something. No, there's, of course, there's shrubbery here and there, right? There's stuff, but right enough but to maintain. You're talking about a lot of animals. A lot of animals. Yeah, it's, it's not obvious that would be the case. So. Yeah. Th- this does sort of lend a little bit to the idea we brought up that that this narrative of of sacrifice and and methodology and everything and and even the the tabernacle itself and is actually a a projection from the future temple and practices into the past that they're saying all of these things originated you know in the wilderness and we brought them into the land and you know it it seems like it might more be the case that much of the practices and and rituals described in Leviticus were actually, you know, brought into play and established once they had settled in the land. And then that was kind of written back into their mythological origin story to explain where they came from and to create this uh, solid identity over time right back into quote unquote history. Yeah, and that's an explanation. Mm-hmm. And it and it touches on a couple of themes that I wanted to bring out by starting with that as we go into the book of Joshua, which is again, you know, what is what is the author up to? And 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 in and in his time and place, right? In the ancient Near Eastern context, you know, what is the what is the narrator's theology? And 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 it seems and one of our sources, Ben, you know, you and I both listened to some interviews from John Walton. Mm-hmm. We've talked about John Walton in the past on the podcast. We He was one of our sources in studying his Lost World series on the Lost World of Genesis 1, the Lost World of Adam and Eve. He's got a book on the Lost World of the Canaanite. What did he call it? The Canaanite? Conquest. Conquest, yeah, which he doesn't right. The can it's called the Canaanite Conquest, but he and his son who wrote the book together don't like calling it the Canaanite Conquest. Mm. And so one of our sources is is from you know John Walton's book or his interviews about it. I, I read the book, and we both listened to some interviews. And you know he's pointing out that 
the events and the characters in this story are not as important as the theology. And so the narrator's trying to do something and trying to tell us something. And the second, so, and then there's this, this idea of history. You know, we've talked about this all the way from the, the introduction to the Bible podcast that we did at the beginning of the year. And as we've gone along, that they're not doing history. You called it this mythological story. This is a foundation story. This is the story of how Israel becomes Israel. This is like it functions for them the way the Aeneid functions for the Romans or the story of Romulus and Remus, which, by the way, are two different stories. And so we get that here, too, right? We have these different stories that don't quite match up and that we get these contradictions, 120 some odd contradictions so far, we've said, right? According to uh, what is it called? Whatever the website was. And 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 the, the people putting this text together the redactors, they know this. They can see it. They know these texts, and they're bringing them together and stringing them together as though they're one narrative when they really aren't. They really don't function that way. They do for us as scripture. So that's another conversation we've had is the idea that scripture is not actually the text, as it were, but the relationship that we have to the text, the way that we read it, and the relationship that we have with other people who read it the same way we do. Mm -hmm. And so that's where our chapter headings come in. That's where our the way we talk about it comes in. The way it, you know, for, from the from the first presidency and the general conference talks all the way down to Sunday school and family home evening, right? That's scripture. And so then there's there's this idea of you know the the context and how history works at that time. They do think they're writing history, but even if we say that, if we talk about genre too then their genre is different from our genre. So they don't have some tools that we have to do history. And we're going to actually go into a discussion of the history of the the so-called Canaanite conquest. And then we'll go into the story itself. So they don't have archaeology. They don't have knowledge of other languages. And they don't have anthropology. We have those tools. And we've uncovered some answers to what really happened. And that, and it, And if we think about that, and we think about what they're actually doing, which is not history. They're not interested in telling exactly what happened. It's not about the events or exactly what the characters were like. It's not about that. It's about the theology and the, and so the other thing that you brought up, Ben, is this, the space, right? This is about creating a space for a new creation. We get this creation over and over from Genesis 1 and 2 on down through the all the books we've read until now. This is another iteration of that. Yeah. It is, yeah. So we're not getting some let's talk about some things we're not going to get out of this text. We're not going to get, you know, ethics. And we've talked about that too. You can't really find ethics in the Bible. You have to already have your ethics with you so that you can pick and choose, you know, whether you're going to kill your son for not listening to you and things like this, right? Uh, so we're not going to find like a holy war or, you know, just war or jihad theory. That's not what this is about or any ethical theory for that matter. But before we go into some of the details of the text and what it's doing and how it's doing it, let's go into the history a little bit. We, we've already said in a past episode, and I'll repeat it here, that the Canaanite conquest wasn't it, what something happened. As we often say about these stories, something happened, but it's not exactly as the text tells it, because that's not what the text is trying to do. It's not the point of the text. It's not to tell what happened. It's to it's to tell who we are right? and how we be, it's an etiology. Mm -hmm. It's a story about how things became the way they are. So, Ben, 
why don't you tell us about the the history, as it were, according to what we know today? Yeah. So, I mean, going along with what you were saying, Christopher, some have termed what we see here in the book of Joshua, something like a sacred history, right? It's not history the way we would think about it, but it's it's history in a a sacred context of of building their religious and national identity. And so it doesn't doesn't follow the the modern his, history discipline rules that we have come to be acquainted with, right? In terms of what actually happened. The book of Joshua is largely rhetorical, right? This is in in a literary sense, there's a lot of rhetoric going on here and and it's used in a particular way to convey a certain message. But when we are stepping back to actual history, okay, this is the idea here is that the context, the historical context of this book is happening somewhere around the 13th century BC. Okay. This is, if, if we just go on like a historical timeline, this is the end of what we call the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age, the end of the Bronze Age is marked by the invasion of what a lot of the historical accounts call the Sea Peoples. Okay, this is just kind of a, a generic term to refer to a series of invasions that happened over a certain period of time ranging all along basically the the eastern part of the Mediterranean, up Anatolia, all the way down Egypt as well. And these invasions are, they're termed, the people that come and make the invasions are termed as sea peoples. And what ends up happening with these invasions are collapses of certain empires. So we have the collapse of the Hittite Empire, which happened somewhat before this time period, but it, it's kind of the beginning of, of these things. And then you had the collapse of the Egyptian empire, and that throws the whole region into a state of, of political, economic, cultural turmoil. And this disrupts a lot of the economic activity and political stability that was brought about by these different empires for for better or for worse right and so in that context historically speaking you have this these israelite tribes that are migrating into this land this land of palestine and what they're coming across is sort of what's left over of these civilizations or what's left over of what these civilizations were able to support. And so a lot of the, the peoples here, they would have relied on the political and economic stability of those empires in order to exist. And with those gone, these people are going to fall apart again politically and economically and uh, a lot of disorder. Ben, there's there are a couple of other periods in history that we can compare this with, oh, right? Yeah. One that you brought up and one and one that I brought up in pre-show discussion. Oh yeah, this has happened multiple times. Yeah, so another example is when the Moors come into Europe, uh -huh. right? Through and into Spain. The 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 Roman Empire has collapsed and there's this disorder and the Moors come in and they bring order. 
Yeah. And this is something that's interesting because the Spanish have actively tried to erase this, this history and, and tell a story that, that they would prefer, right? But this is what happened. And so the same thing happened. You brought up another example. Yeah, some might call it, you know, some might call these scenarios a power vacuum, right? right. These sea peoples, you know, in our maybe our our historical consciousness as a people, right? We we think of Vikings, you know, coming across the sea and invading and and causing all kinds of chaos. But it was maybe, you know, that that might be something that's that's happening as well. But into, oh, and that's another example. Yeah. I was thinking of, I was thinking of Columbus. Yes, you brought and up so Columbus there's, earlier too. Yeah, so then there's there's the flip flip side of that. So historically, also in the what we call the New World or the the North and South American continents, you know, post Columbus, there there were certain periods of conquest that you know caused a lot of issues for the the empires and the peoples that were there. But it's pretty well established and accepted that the vast majority of quote unquote destruction of the people that happened was from spread of disease. And they, they estimate that, you know, in the, the populations of North and South America pre Columbus were something like 10 times what they are in, you know, the 18th century. And this is from diseases that the conquistadors brought, right? Sure. That, yeah. That they, the that the indigenous peoples had no immunity to. Right. Right. This is covered by Jared Diamond, right? And guns, germs, and steel. Yeah. That that he he's an author that dealt with that specifically, and others have dealt with it as well. So the idea here being that when the European settlers, you know, in the the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries come in, what they're settling. Yes, there was there was there was conflict, there was conquest, there were war, a lot of things that happened, but largely what they're settling is land that has and and areas that have already been depopulated probably by disease and conquering peoples who are weak. Conquering peoples who are already very weak and dispossessed and and have lost their cultural traditions because you know a lot of that that disease is going to kill off the older generation as well. So you lose all that knowledge. When you lose all that knowledge in a society, it it also affects your economy. And when it affects your economy, it affects your food supply. And so it's this it's this sort of like ripple exponential effect that ends up causing you know broader problems within the civilization collapse. You know, a lot of the explorers that would go into the west of the continent you know, pre or early years of the United States would, would find some of the peoples that they realized that they were really just kind of the remnants of much larger, more complex, advanced civilizations. But because of everything that had happened, all of the destruction, mainly from disease, but there were other causes as well. They had been for, for lack of a better term, kind of reduced to the point that they they weren't able to to really resist the the colonization much. And in the case of the Moors, you know, moving into Spain, they were actually welcome. Sometimes mm-hmm. the, the the conqueror can be welcome because they bring order. Yes, there's many cases of that as well. Those types of scenarios and food, 
Food is very important too. Yeah. So we find ourselves in a similar situation here in, in ancient mm-hmm. Palestine, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in this context, you know, we see all these examples in history. We can we can overlay that pretty easily here. And archaeologically, the archaeological evidence supports this, that there was not near the event of conquest weren't anywhere near what are described in particularly the book of Joshua. A lot of these things were, you know, very minor, if at all, skirmishes, you know, between peoples. And they happened over a very long period of time, gradual and complex situations or, or, or processes. And so the way that we have them recounted in here isn't, again, like we've been saying, a historical record. It's a rhetorical record, and it has a particular purpose. I see what you did there, Ben. I like that. <laughs> That's good rhetoric. So, okay. So do we move into the text then and the story that it tells? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's go into that. Oh, by the way, one more thing uh, before we move on. There's a great website, mapsofwar.com, that has. I don't know if if browsers support Flash anymore. Flash no. was misused. You know this this site has an imperial history of the Middle East, and this is what Flash was intended for. It shows you all of the empires that were. By the way, the Middle East is just the the modern, the same region as the ancient Near East but in modern times, same region, different time. You and I, Ben, we studied Middle East studies. That we, that means we studied that, that part of the world, but we didn't study it at the in biblical times. That would be ancient Near Eastern studies, right? Yeah. So this imperial history of the Middle East, as they call it at mapsofwar.com, actually shows you all of the empires from antiquity through the age of colonization. As they, it's 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 pretty cool, and there's actually a video on YouTube of it. Yeah, so there's so there's definitely a, a video on YouTube. You can check it out. Imperial history of the Middle East. Okay, so going into the text, then Ben, we have some things we have to deal with. One of them is language. So when we talk about this conquest and this, what is it they call it? The utter destruction. That's not it. Utterly destroyed. Yeah, utterly destroyed. Oh, it utter is destruction. utter destruction. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I've got jokes about that, but we won't tell them now. <laughs> we're trying to keep this to an hour, Ben. So you have this, you have this, uh, what is called in Hebrew, cherem, and it has been translated as utter destruction, but it's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the meaning of the word. It's, it can be, so what, what scholars like John Walton do, biblical scholars, they go into this and they look at all the contexts in which these words are used and they find out what they mean in the context. Out of the range of possible meanings. If you don't know translation, you know, there are going to be words, for example, Ben and I, you and I studied Arabic. People think Arabic is hard because the script, right? It's so foreign. I can't Mm -hmm. read that. Even if it would be Spanish and I don't know Spanish, I could actually sound it out, right? Because I have, I know the script, but it's not that that makes Arabic so hard. It really is that there's one word that has 50 meanings. Or there are 50 words that have one meaning. <laughs> That's, and then the vast lexicon, meaning there are a lot of words that, that, and so you have to deal with that. And then, you know, the grammar can be complex, but it, yeah, it's, it's that English. And I mean, if you're coming from English, yeah. you know, there's almost no shared vocabulary or roots between English and Arabic. And so, you know, Indo European languages, there's going to be a lot of shared roots of the words and so there's some similarities there that you can kind of get out and there's almost nothing shared you know between english and arabic so that's one of the reasons that you know it makes it difficult for english speakers to then learn arabic so what would you say 
this word cherem means if not utter destruction. What did you get from from Walton? What did you understand? So it's also been translated as a devoted thing. I, I guess I could mm-hmm. say, you know, so it consecrated? can mean, yeah, consecrated, you know, devoted to per- particular thing. You know, utter destruction. Set apart. Yeah. It's it's not it's not that it's an incorrect translation. Right. It's that utter destruction has certain connotations in our language. And so when you say that, people are thinking something violent and and you know fire and and blood and you know blood guts and fire right <laughs> and maybe just killing right so yeah. so here's where the things come so we can have something utterly destroyed without death mm-hmm. and and this kind of thing but now we have the other thing that's this rhetoric right so anytime that there's a in antiquity that that somebody describes a conquest there's a certain way that it's done and we can see this in other texts surrounding texts and this is one of the advantages that we have now and we have knowledge of languages and, and we have access to text through archaeology and linguistics and so we can see that there's a rhetoric of conquest where well to give you an example from the crusades we rode up to our knees in blood right and every last person was killed no one was left standing and of course we have in the text that Everyone was killed in that way or destroyed or whatever the, whatever the case may be. But again, the, the question is how to translate this and what's really going on between the word Jerem and between the rhetoric of, of conquest. And so, but then you have people that are still there. Yeah. And then you have further conflict. How yeah. does that work? And that's because the rhetoric is we killed everybody, everybody. There wasn't a man's left standing, man, woman, or child, right? That's how you tell the story. And by the way, this functions not only as a, uh, a foundational myth for the Israelite people, but it functions as an ancient Near Eastern deterrent. Mm-hmm. Right? We have a nuclear deterrent today. They had this story, and they wanted that story to get out there, right? The story that we're the ones that came in, and somebody did, by the way, the Sea Peoples, right? We're the ones that came in and destroyed all this, right? And, and took over and don't mess with us, right? Yeah, it's just it's just how things are said. And it was understood that this is how you do it. This is how you tell the story. You know, we have within our literary genres, we have a lot of things like this that we just take for granted, you know, that this is just how the story is told. We have certain structure to poetry. And if you study poetry, it's like, oh, there's a certain way that you compose a poem, and that's the kind of poem it is. And if you don't compose it that way, then it's not a sonnet, you know, like you have to do it this way. You know, we we also have things within our culture that are like when when you ask someone how they're doing, basically like the expected response is good or I'm doing well, you know, even if you're not right. Like that's just how you say it. Now, there are other cultures like particularly European cultures where that isn't necessarily a thing like you say how you're doing, like they tell you exactly how they're doing. Right. And so but but especially I think within American culture, maybe it's just Midwestern like you just always say you're doing well, even if you're not, right? And so yeah. this is just taken as a given in our culture, but you know that's not necessarily the thing in all cultures. So just just like that, in this, the way that you tell a conquest story, the way that you tell how you came to be as a nation is it has to be in these absolute, you know, no uncertain terms about how you vanquished all the people and only you are left standing because your God is the greatest. That's how it's done. That's how you tell the story. If you don't tell the story that way, then people don't understand what you're saying. 
Yeah. So another thing that we can go into with this idea of Kerem is, is whether the people had to be wiped out or whether they were driven out. And even, and by the way, you know, with John Walton, right? Dr. Walton's going to say that they were driven out and he's going to apologize. So he doesn't think we have to defend God or apologize for God for his justice because the Canaanites weren't actually being judged. It's not like they were chased down wherever they went. They were just driven out. It's not like they had a covenant with God. The things that they were doing, it would be like our neighbors drinking coffee. If we're, if we're Mormons, we don't drink coffee. But if our, our neighbors drink coffee, that's not immoral, right? They don't have a covenant yeah. not to do that. So it's, so that comes into play. Are they, you know, when Jesus drives out the money changers from the temple, he also drives out their customers, right? It's the money changers and the customers and money changing is essential. I, you know, some people don't know this. It's essential to the functioning of the temple. It's just not supposed to happen in the temple. So yeah, I think that's a, an apt comparison because we're talking about creating a sacred space. The Israelites are going to, God is going to be with them, which by the way, I think is the main theology of the, of the Old Testament, right? Is, is Emmanuel, right? God is with us. Yes. And, and so they're going to host him. And so they have to have this place where they're going to be, where they're going to ultimately host God at, at the mercy seat, right? Between the two cherubim and the Holy of Holies and the, in the temple in Jerusalem. Yeah, this is the this is their mentality that the idea is that they are they are the people that God has put his name on, right? And they are to go into this land and make it the place the abode for their God. And in order to do that, the place has to be a holy place and anything that doesn't belong can't be there anymore. Which is going to include, right, rhetorically, that anybody who's not them is going to be described in stereotypical ways. You know, when when we hear about the sin or the abomination or whatever of the Canaanites, we're not actually getting an account, okay, they did this, this, and this, right? It's given in sort of broad general terms. It's just that there are these barbarians, you know, there's mm-hmm. these barbarians that sacrifice their children and, and, and are lascivious or sexually licentious or, you know, in these broad sweeping terms, they're these, they're this other, right? And so again, this is rhetoric. This is how it's done. We still do this today when we want to go to war, right? We have to first, in some sense, dehumanize the other people. They're going to be less than, they're going to be abominable. They're going to be barbarians or whatnot. Yeah, they're animals. That's often, you know, some kind of yeah. animal or or zombie or, you know, something other than human. Anything other than human. Yeah, their their religion makes them a zombie or something, right? Ours doesn't do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they're creating this sacred space uh, and in their way of thinking, even though we're sh- we're showing that they're living that they gradually move into this space, they live with their Canaanite neighbors. Last time we recorded on the book of what was it? Numbers? No, Deuteronomy. Sorry. Last time we recorded on Deuteronomy, we talked about the the similarities that we now know from archaeological evidence between Canaanite and Israelite religion, that they're a lot closer than, than we thought they were. If we just had the Bible to go on, you get this sense, which I think is true, that we're trying to somehow be different, right? We're going to, we're going to be set apart 
and we're going to be different and we're not going to do it. We're certainly not going to do it the way we did it in Egypt or the way they did it in Egypt. That's one thing. That's a major theme. And we're not going to do it like the Canaanites. But then we have the Asherah discussion that we had when we covered Deuteronomy. And it turns out that while there are some differences, there are many similarities in the religion. And so they're living together. Their religions are similar, but they're emphasizing the differences. You know, this is sort of the opposite of what we do when the missionaries meet with people. You know, when LDS missionaries meet with people who have different beliefs, they emphasize what's similar. Mm -hmm. They don't focus on what's different. Mm -hmm. They're doing the opposite here. They're focusing on what's different. They're emphasizing what's different to, to make themselves Right. This, this, like we want to be this peculiar people, right? They're set apart. Yeah. Back to the, the concept of Hedem, right? The idea here is that if we're going to say utter destruction, it's an annihilation of an identity, right. of, of a culture, maybe even. But the, there's not the necessity necessarily, right? That the requirement isn't that the people themselves be killed, notwithstanding what the text says. Okay, so notwithstanding the text using hyperbolic or, or you know, inclusive blanket terms to say all, right? Universalist, right? Yeah, universalist terms. The the idea is that the the culture is being removed, and the identity of the people or the religion, all of those things that are tied up together, is being removed out of the land to make space for the Israelites' God, and. That may, again, the mentality here is that that may necessitate that the people either are physically removed or killed, but that isn't the the goal. Now, that I've had a hard time with even kind of wrapping my head around the mentality of that there because I only see it as marginally better. (laughs) I could say than genocide, Right. right? Because it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not genocide but it's a threat of genocide right right and it's a and it's a forced migration right yeah and and so you know walton he gives this example he calls it he compares it he says it's not political on the one hand but he calls it he uses a political term he calls it eminent domain and i know he knows by the way that that there is no political and you know and religious the the secular and the religious are not separate in this context, right? But he uses this eminent domain term because he does think that the people were displaced, if not, if not destroyed in the sense that they were physically uh, killed, let's say killed, right? That they were destroyed in the sense that they lost their, 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 their national identity, right? That's what's, Mm -hmm. that's what this is about is national identity. And so uh, identity is very much wrapped up in this conversation. Assimilated or dispossessed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They had to be, but we know, we don't really follow with John Walton in this way because we believe, according to the archaeological evidence, that they actually lived with the Canaanites. And so they don't even have to, not only were they not killed, they also were not necessarily, uh, they were not necessarily killed. They were also not necessarily, let me start over. Not only were they not necessarily killed, they were not necessarily displaced either. But a sacred space has to be created in a way, and and I think in their context, you know, they just didn't see a way to think about it, no matter what the reality was. Here they are living together without thinking in terms of they can't be them f- for us to be us, something like that. And so, Ben, you and I in pre-show discussion, we came up with some 
some analogies. We got some from John Walton. We're uncomfortable with most of them. Yeah. <laughs> and we want to bring this conversation to the listener, right? To not say that we have the answers, but to say that we have some questions and to share, to share that in, in this dialogue, right? And so one example I came up with is the example of all the way up until, I mean, this kind of ancient mentality lasted all the way through, you know, until the 1960s in America, where you think that the, that blacks can't live with us while they're living with us. They're taking care of our kids and living in our house, but we're pretending that they're not living with us. The, the one thing they can't do is use our bathroom and our water fountain, right? Something like this. But they can prepare our meals. And, and yet, and... but they can prepare our meals. They can yeah. take care of our kids. And so we're, we're pretending, right? that they're not able to, we're not able to live with them while we're living with them. And so I, you can see the ancient and Israelites in this same dynamic, right? In the same kind of relationship. I think it's an apt uh, analogy. What do you think, Ben? Yeah. I mean, it, it gets at the mentality. I think what's, what's really, what's really hard for me to, where I wrestle with it is because in the stating of this is what their mentality was, it almost feels like there's a bit of a justification of it, you know, like, like we're saying this was their mentality and it was okay in that time. And like, I think that's where I, I have trouble with it because there, for, for me, there's a, there's a moral problem with the mentality. And for me to, put it within a context and say, well, it's morally okay in this context, like that, that is a slight at my morality, right? <laughs> we don't have to say it was right or that right. We, we, we have to, we only have to say that they didn't know better. Yeah. Right. That, or they, they at least wouldn't admit it. And yeah. by the way, the way that these, the way that they're, the, the story tell that the narrator, right. Of this story is telling the story gave them cause, gave those very people I'm talking about cause because the Bible was used to justify this way of thinking about people, right? So, uh, slavery was in America was justified through, through the Bible, right? Yeah. And the way that these stories are being told and, and when they're thought to be literally true caused them to use the text to justify what they were doing. Yeah. So, yeah. And so another a flip side of that, Ben, you said in pre-show discussion that you felt like we were condemning the idea that you would need to. Were you saying that they were condemning in some sense that the even the need to make this sacred space? I remember thinking of of, you know, in, in our context, the idea that that Zion is the pure in heart, right? That the kingdom of God is within you. Zion is the pure in heart, that that's something that happens wherever you are, right? Lift where you stand, stand in holy places. And by the way, sacred space has, has never been a literal space, right? This is a mode. You know, the, the sacred mountain is present in all different societies and different geographies, right? The center of the world is, by the way, it's, it's true even in, in, in today's cosmography. Where's the center of the universe? Well, there isn't one. And then, of course, it's here where I am. I mean, how how else can I make sense of of the universe, right? It's like yeah, there's no center, but it there is, and it's here where I am, and it's where you are too, Ben, right? Yeah, so I think I would say that we certainly can condemn the idea that in order to create the sacred space, you have to you have to physically or literally do these things, 
you know, like right. drive other people out or, or something like that. But that the the concept in and of itself, the idea that creating a sacred space does mean removing things that don't belong. That's a sound idea. Yes. But what, you know, how you end up applying that and and coming to the conclusion about which things do and don't belong, that's where we get into some really, really, you know, difficult, sticky stuff, right? Well, before you go into, I know you have analogies for that too, Ben. Before you go into that, we, we don't have to move to Jackson County and displace all the non-Mormons. Well, actually, they're, they're, they're all Mormons, right? <laughs> they're all these sects, all these Mormon sects. So the Latter-day Saints who only this one rectangle, right? How big is it, Ben? I don't know how big it is. It's not very big, right? And there are all these other Mormon sects that own all this land. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to go in there and displace anybody or buy up lands or whatever. Yeah. We can build Zion where we stand. Yeah. In our hearts. Right. And so that's, you know, and that's the important thing. And the temple, by the way, the temple today, like then, because again, it's not like the Canaanites weren't there. The temple stood amidst the Canaanites, the temple stands uh, amidst, what do they call it, Mammon, right? Hmm. Babylon. Babylon, yeah. It stands amidst Babylon today, as we call it, which, again, is rhetoric. So some other metaphorical ways of thinking about this are, one other way is when you have a garden, right? So you have a vegetable garden, and it gets weeds in it. You know, you're not necessarily against the plants themselves, but we we term them weeds because they don't belong there where these other plants are. And so they have to be removed. Yeah. It's okay if they grow on the other side of the barrier, right? That's not a problem. They're not a weed right there. But as soon as they cross that line, they're a weed, right? And so- Yeah, well, isn't, isn't the dandelion a weed? Well, it is if it's in the wrong place. If it's not in the wrong place, then it's not right, a Right, because I drink, I drink dandelion tea, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I, I want to have dandelion tea that's got to be somewhere, but not in my vegetable garden, right? Yeah. I think it's an apt comparison you bring up, Ben, because the sacred space, all the way back to Genesis 1, is a garden, right? And it, and it's within those walls. And the temple is, a, it's the same idea, right? It's the, it's the sacred space that has these boundaries, and we keep that and tend that space in a in a holy way, right? This is this is sacred. This is priesthood work, right? This is priestly work. This is sacred work that we do. This is what Adam and Eve are doing as priest and priestess in the garden. Mm-hmm. In in the garden and the temple are in some sense indistinguishable. Well, the yeah, the temple is supposed to be symbolic of the garden or the garden even symbolic of the temple, the presence of the Lord. Exactly. So what do you do with the with the weeds, Ben? <laughs> this is where the analogy falls apart, right? Yeah. I pull them out and I throw them over the fence, right? And the weeds have to die, right? So yeah, that's where the analogy falls apart because, you know, when when we're saying at least in this context of the book of Joshua, right? Now we're talking about people. We're not talking about weeds. But just like you right. were saying before, you know, the rhetoric is that we have to dehumanize, right? And so in order to 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 push the narrative of that conflict forward, these people have to be defined as animals or weeds, right? And so that they can be exactly. removed because they don't belong within that space. And that's the mentality that I'm I'm objecting to in, in how of that's course. labeled. The concept of creating a sacred space, and, and John Walton did bring this up, but it was kind of in passing. I felt like he really needed to, to double down on it more, is more that our hearts, right? That our hearts are supposed to be this sacred space. And so 
within our hearts, we need to remove the things that don't belong there. What belongs there? God belongs there, right? As a Christian, we we die, you know, we were crucified with Christ, so we die to all of those things and 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 become a new creature. So, yeah, Doctor Walton distinguished between his, you know, his covering of his his treatment of the history, right? And his, the application of what would be the application for us. And, and so when it comes to the application with us, he would come down in the same, you know, would be on the same side, right? Yeah. This is about purifying our own hearts. But again, the, I think, you know, to bottom line it, if I can do that in the interest of time, you know, while they were living with the Canaanites, they pretended that somehow they weren't. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. In the same way, in the same way that 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 whites did with blacks, as I as I brought up earlier. Yeah. And so the point is for for them to think of themselves as different and distinct, and as the and, and of the temple as a sacred space, and to keep it and to and to think about it that way and to treat it that way, and that's something that we do, right? I mean, it's we we consecrate, we dedicate the building. Otherwise, it's just a building, right? Before we dedicate it. The temple is just a building. So when we dedicate it, we're saying we're consecrating this space. We're setting it apart. We are, we, I think we could use the, the verb cherem here, right? Yeah, devoting devoting it to. Yeah, we're, sure. Yeah, to the sacred purpose. So uh, we could kind of give an overview of the narrative that's happening here. You know, at the beginning, we have this battle of Jericho, right? Joshua comes in and people are familiar with what happens in the battle of Jericho. One of the interesting sort of like sub themes here that I see is that, that that comes up when there's the story of Rahab and then Achan. Okay. So if we, I, I kind of saw within this almost a, a depiction of a yin yang concept. So, this is the dance between chaos and order, the balance between chaos and order that exists. And and within the chaos, there's a little bit of order. And within the order, there's a little bit of chaos. And that's kind of the idea. And and that's represented in the yin-yang symbol as this, there's the black side and the white side, right? Yeah. And it's a circle. It's a tai chi, sort of a, tai chi symbol, yeah. Right. And so there's there's the, the, the black dot and the white half and the white dot in the black half. Right. I saw this in this story and and I'm not sure exactly why and I'm not sure what all to make of it, but I just thought it was something interesting that stood out because with within, you know, the Israelites, these would be uh, ostensibly the order, right? The order part of this that are coming into the land to create order out of the the disorder that's going on, the uncleanliness of the people, unfitness to be in the presence of God. And, you mean ritual uncleanliness, right? Yeah, ritual uncleanliness, right? Yeah. Okay. And and then with within that, we have this woman Rahab, who, interestingly enough, she's talked about as a prostitute in the text, which maybe we can talk about here in just a sec. But she, what she does is she lets the spies in to her home, and she becomes a collaborator with the Israelites against her own people, right? And, and you know, sort of aids and abets the enemy, so to speak. And so, whereas if the Israelites are sort of the, the order force here, then Rahab is the that dot of order among the chaos, her own people. 
And then among the Israelites, once they have uh, they have taken over Jericho, destroyed it, right? You have this man, Achan, who goes in and takes of the treasure of the booty for his own use, where this is stuff is supposed to be cherem, right? This is supposed to be set aside. This is God's. This is not supposed to be plundered for your own personal use, but he takes it and does that. Right, Ben. And this is, there, there's something else to bring out here too, is that because what we're saying is that what is Canaanite is not fit for this space and this, this sacred space. So you can't intermarry with the Canaanites. You can't take the, you can't take booty, right? You, you don't, it's like, it's unclean, right? You don't touch it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then he would kind of be the representation of the, that chaos that exists within the broader order. Right. And so I kind of saw that in the story here. And whereas Rahab is saved, her and all of her family are saved and not destroyed with the rest of the Israelites. Achan and all the of Canaanites. his family and kids. Yeah, Canaanites. Achan and all of his family, including children, right, in the text are killed. And so, again, we have that juxtaposition between these these two characters. That is a really interesting point you bring up, Ben. Are there any other any other details in the text that you wanted to go into? I didn't really have anything but I you know, but Rahab, because I did see her at the center of the story. And I yeah, didn't what do you really make catch of the other the text identifying her as a prostitute. What why what's the purpose of that? Yeah, I don't know. You know, for me for me, as with John Walton, I don't think that 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 for the narrator's purpose that that's really the point, right? That's not a focal point, you know, right. that she's a prostitute because, and then of course we could ask, what are they doing there? Right. I mean, that's you, sort you of You just the, called uh, her order and chaos. What are they doing there with a prostitute? And again, I think the narrator is not thinking about that, but it does make sense. One thing I could say is that it makes sense that, that a, that someone on, that a prostitute or someone at that, in that part of society is, I think is what I want to say could be the one who would be collaborating with the enemy, so to speak. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. I or, wonder or how if about she open to receiving be... them? How about open to receiving them? Can we say that? Yeah. 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 That, that would be, be true. That's, that's a, that's a good point that she might actually be. And, and that's important to the narrative because she would have been the only one in society that would be open to receiving whoever into her home, right? So that that would make sense. Right. That's, that's an interesting point. The other, my other thought though was that maybe she isn't actually prostitute, but within the within the mm-hmm. mindset of the narrative, right? She's she is betraying her people, right? And yes. so she's prostituting to another god. Yeah, I'm not looking right. I'm not looking at the yeah. text here. You know, the original Hebrew, but we did we did explain, I think, in last week's episode that. To prostitute oneself does not necessarily mean what, you know, what hookers on street corners do, right? That this can mean betraying, betraying your religious religion, tradition or your, your which, people. Yeah. Which means yeah. culture in this context, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your, yeah. your entire it's identity. All, it's all one. Your, your people, yeah. your na- your nation, exactly. Yeah. So an- another interesting point, in, and again, I, I didn't detail my notes enough on this, but so the book of Joshua – 
obviously the the main largest portion of the narrative is about Joshua and his leadership of the people. He is touted as the successor to Moses and it, multiple things are done to show that, right? You know, crossing the Jordan, the 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 river divides just like the Red Sea did for Moses and the text even like explicitly states, oh, just like Moses, you know. And so there's all these moments throughout where Joshua is shown to be like the legitimate successor of Moses. However, there's also a section uh, where it talks about the conquests of Caleb. So remember that Joshua and Caleb are the two quote-unquote good spies, right? There were 12 spies sent in to see the land, and 10 of them gave what they called evil reports. But Joshua and Caleb gave good reports saying, you know, the land is fit, we can go in and possess it. And so they are seen as as the heroes and they live. They are the only two that survive the 40 years in the wilderness, right? And live to possess the land afterward. Everybody else dies of the first generation, I should say. So Joshua and Caleb are the ones that survive. Joshua is the tribe of Ephraim. Caleb is the tribe of Judah. And if you remember, you know, I, Christopher, I can't get off of this, <laughs> this repeating theme that I see of this sort of subtle competition between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim for, you know, who's the better leader, who's the legitimate heir to the throne or, or inheritor of that leadership role. And here in the book of Joshua, obviously, the majority of the narrative focuses on Joshua as the one who inherits that role. But there's there's this section where it talks about Caleb, and he has forces in some way that he goes and does these conquests, and it lists out his conquests. And it's almost like that is like a a separate surviving narrative, right? We you know we talk about in the documentary hypothesis that there's multiple sources here that are brought together. It's almost like you have a Joshua source, right? That that is this Ephraim narrative that's justifying Ephraim's legitimacy as the leader of the Israelites. And then you have this other narrative that is sort of the Caleb narrative who justifies Judah as the leader of the Israelites. And so this narrative that has Caleb and 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 recounts all of his conquests almost seems to be like making a, that sort of political stump speech, right? You're always the keen observer of the political subtext, Ben. I really <laughs> appreciate that. Ben, you know, another thing that occurs to me going back to Rahab again is that there are other prostitute stories in the text. And by the way, I said something about hookers on street corners. I mean, I could have brought up Tamar at the, at yeah. the fork in the road, right? Yeah. Tamar and, and her father-in-law, Judah, and there's Jezebel, and there's Mary Magdalene with a question mark. There's there's Jesus going to, when he wants to establish a new order, he also goes to not just prostitutes, but but these sort of the dregs of society, as it were, uh -huh. right? Yeah. The people who are actually going to be open to receiving him. And so that's where I saw her as open to receiving them and and to influence in that way. And it really, you know, it paid off for her and her family in the story, right? Yeah. No, I think it's a good point. Yeah. Well, Ben, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. You know, it's been it's been interesting reading the book of Joshua, studying it, uh, discussing it with you, and you brought out some really good points. I, I again appreciate your keen observance of those political subtexts. That's really really interesting. <laughs> I should say stuff. the the book of yeah. Joshua. It, there are definitely some interesting parts in it, right? 
and there's also some incredibly boring parts. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you were ahead of me in the reading, and, and, and I was already dreading reading a whole <laughs> book of the Bible again this week, and then you told me it was boring, and I thought, great, thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked about how numbers had these parts where it was just like, oh, where's the water, right? You know, and and Joshua, there's there's the sections where it goes on and on about which tribes possess which parts of the land that's the right of their land right because all of this is is a a text with a particular genre and this follows the pattern of ancient texts that go through and and portion the land and say what belongs to what and 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 it all fits within that there are there are many ancient texts that follow this exact same pattern in the way that they present things. And that was just the genre of, of the time, so to speak. Right. And it's, it's, it's not fun for us to read or even listen to, (laughs) (laughs) but we still encourage you to read all of the text. (laughs) Yeah. There might be something you're missing. (laughs) Well, Ben, do you have anything else to add? I don't think so. Okay. Well, thank you again for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Christopher Hurtado. Ben Peterson. <laughs>